tonight on Arena. The Fablemans, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed and Plain are the movies up for review and we speak to star soprano Danielle Denise. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena tonight. In our film reviews, we look at the Fableman's semi-autobiographical story, loosely based on director Steven Spielberg's adolescence, told through an original story of the fictional Sammy Fableman, a young aspiring filmmaker. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, a documentary about the battle waged by American photographer Nan Golden against the Sackler family of Purdue Farmer for their role in the deadly opioid epidemic in the U.S. And finally, playing an action thriller starring Jared Butler as a pilot who finds himself caught in a war zone after he's forced to land his commercial aircraft during a terrible storm. Joining us to discuss this week's films are Tara Brady and Justin McGregor. And let us start with uh, The Fablemans. Uh, this, uh, this is the story of Steven yeah. Spielberg. This is the story of Steven Spielberg. Full stop. Yeah. I mean, I, I yes, I yes, I've seen words and, and as you've just used semi-autobiographical, yeah. but I think the only semi part is they've changed the, the names. names a little bit, but mm. it like it very very closely corresponds to everything that we know about Spielberg, and what everybody knows about Spielberg is, is two things. Um, when you think about the word Spielbergian. We, th- we think about a certain, and this is an origin for like what mm. is Spielberg and what is Spielbergian. So we think about Spielbergian, we think about films like Indiana Jones and we think about cl- films like E.T. and Close Encounters. And it doesn't matter that he's made Saving Private Ryan or Sl- Schindler's List. Those are the movies that you think about when you hear the word Spielbergian. And, and this, this film very much charts the origins of where that came from, which of course is his parents' divorce because that's the other thing yeah. we all know about Spielberg. Because like, you know, never mind, you know, sort of Brad and Angie, like the big divorce in the movie verse is the Spielberg one because it's loomed over his films um, like all the way through his career and you see that pattern of like absent fathers or divorced families or fractured families and suburban setups and and that's what that's what we're right in the middle of here except it's him yeah and and, uh, you know yes they loom I take Tara's point there's uh, Justin the the, the idea of divorce the missing father broken families that that looms over all of the films But here we get the nuts and bolts of what happened. It really is, you know, be careful if your son's a filmmaker because he might just be watching you when you're up to something you shouldn't be up to. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he, he, he falls in love with film right away, back when his parents are kind of happier. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, there's clearly something maybe not quite right in the family dynamic that you're not quite sure about. And uh, that becomes sort of the overarching theme because there's sort of vignettes, times in his life that he wants to go through. Yeah. But wherever he moves to, this pending divorce, this uncertainty, you know, his mother gets a monkey at one point because she's so depressed. It's always sort of there. But what I find really fascinating is there's a huge effort on his part, not to take sides. Yeah. You know, he doesn't portray the father or mother as right or wrong, that this just happened and affected him. And and, and it, it almost seems painfully yeah. attempting not to take sides yeah. in this argument. Which is fair enough um, um, that, he, that he tries to do that. Because we get lovely scenes with the father kind of supporting him with by 
pumping money into cameras that he Mm -hmm. wants, editing machines that he wants, all of the rest of it. And his mother, really, who helped him make his first, in inverted Mm -hmm. commas, film. It's a beautiful scene, the the whole thing around the toy train. Maybe give us a sense before I play the clip. Well, uh, I think think that's where where the film is at its best is as an origin story of Spielberg as a filmmaker rather than as a family drama. Um, I think it falls down a little bit as a family drama, partly because the characters are a little bit complex and just kind of slightly uneven in the way that sometimes characters are when you're drawing from life um, but like the, the I thought the, the the early scenes where you see him going to the greatest show on earth mm. and, and he's a little boy and he sets up and you know he's afraid of he's seen this huge spectacular train crash on the, on the screen and he, he sets out to try and conquer his fear at the advice of his mother by recreating what he saw on the thing which he does with all yeah. his trains and, and like and setting it all up and, and look and, and, it, and that's just such a lovely section and the filmmaking scene I think are a lovely section and like that's all the way through the film right to the very end which is a very famous (laughs) scene that everybody's talking about which is David Lynch's John Ford and and those moments from Spielberg's actual career I think are the best are are really uh, telling well here's here's, uh, one of those moments between mother and son I've chosen to give you this time Michelle Williams plays Mitzi the mother and uh, Matteo Zorian is playing Sammy Fableman for which read Mrs. Spielberg and Steven Spielberg, (laughs) respectively. And here she is. They've come home from the cinema and he really wants to kind of master what he's just seen on the screen. Sammy, we're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train won't ever get broken. One more thing, Dolly. Let's not tell your father. It'll be our secret movie, just yours and mine. Okay? In fact, it's all Michelle Williams that we hear there, isn't it, in, in, in that clip. And, and there is a beautiful relationship, both between mother and son and father and son here, Justin. Yeah, no, it's amazing because she was a, a pianist and I guess the, the left side of the brain and the father was mm. the brave right side of the brain, computer engineer, created a lot of technology and perfect for a filmmaker we, to have. <laughs> yes, yeah, so he has that perfect sort of balance of the, of the two sides. And I think that's part of that effort of sort of not taking sides is that he really is a product of both. And they begin to see that. I think she sees it first here, but there's a, he's making a, a John Ford sort of film with his high school friends uh, and, and, and the gunfights look all fake. And he solves the problem by poking holes in the film. And when he tells his father, his father lights up and is like, you're thinking like an engineer. Mm. Like it's a sort of wonderful moment yeah. of the father recognising it's his son. You know, it's beautifully handled. But it was, isn't it the case, uh, however, Tara, that in, in the story, we, we, we're given the story here of how we see that their uncle, there's like... not a real uncle just a pal of the family and Mm. and the mother are actually growing very close to each other and that's the real problem Spielberg had incorrectly blamed the divorce on on his father is this a kind of a corrective motion then that's that's what I felt it was because while I well I totally agree with Justin to an extent that like he's trying not to portion blame there's something subconscious going on mm. I think there's something like the kind of subconscious things that usually go on in Greek plays um, because <laughs> I, I think um, I, I think there's um 
I, I, th- I think the Mitzi, the mother character, is, is very, very flighty and in, in a way that's not always particularly sympathetic. And while they give her context and they give her the fact that, you know, she's someone who should be a concert pianist and who's been yeah. sort of frustrated and stifled by the, the roles that are imposed on married American women in, in suburbia at that time. Yeah, like I, I, th- I think there's, and there, there's a few scenes as well that are like quite excruciating with her. But I think that the Seth Rogen character is very interesting as the, as the uncle as well because he's another character in the thing who isn't particularly likable even though he's always very jolly. And I, and I thought that was yeah. v- very cleverly done. Yeah, and, and the two mothers are there as in the two grandmothers of the yes. young Spielberg are there all too short for me because they mm-hmm. were f- fabulous characters that can kind of disappear but it's a long film. It's a long film, but there were there were some. I think the two grandmothers just weren't in enough. Judd Hirsch has yep. this amazing appearance in the middle of the film, and you think, "I'm so glad he's going to be in the rest of the film." He is not he's in the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, he no, he's, he's uncle. He's an uncle of Michelle Williams, isn't that it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he shows a great uncle, I guess, to Spielberg, yes. and he shows up and has this amazing monologue about art and family will tear you apart. And you think, oh, "I love this character," and then mm. he's gone like the grandmothers. So there are these amazing kind of small characters that sort of come and go, and it's like Tara said. There's there's this family film and this the story of Steven yeah. Spielberg and I do think it was the second one I'd like to have known a bit more about because that those were the yeah. scenes that were the well, most. We've great. had a lot of odes to film in recent times. It has to be said. Do we need another one? And would, 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 does this film work? Did you just want the ode to film? Um, I did prefer the ode to film. I have to say. Um, I mean, I mean, it's 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 interesting because it's obviously arise in the same sort of wave as as Branagh's Belfast and this yeah. kind of period of very self reflective cinema among among big kind of muscular filmmakers. And I don't think it's among the best of those. I mean, it's it's very it's very watchable and like the time, even though it's a very very extended runtime, it, it like it, like it does actually fly by. But when you think about like the billing that we've had for this story and bear in mind like Spielberg for years blamed his father for the divorce and when they made up in 1999 it was a front page story on Life magazine it was a big news story so you know this is kind of this story that's been waiting to be told and it feels a little bit flat and superficial for what we're getting Yeah Paul Dano plays the father Michelle Williams as the mother here Um, does does it work over I mean we could talk about this film and nothing else because it's it's so long and there are so many sides to it but overall, did it work for you? And it is an, an Oscar contender. I know it is an Oscar contender. And I must say, I, I feel a little at odds with the reviews, people calling it a masterpiece or his finest mm. work. I mean, Schindler's List, Jaws, Saving mm. Private Ryan, Amistad. I think those films are absolutely spectacular. Lincoln, you know, all those films have so much more going on and so much more depth. And I think he was handcuffed by this family story that he wanted to tell, that he would have been better, you know, treating the parents more off screen and really looking at himself. Because those scenes, the anti-Semitism he faces in high school, some of that stuff is really, really gripping and it needed more of, yeah. of that. So stars from you then, Justin. Well, it's still very, very, it's still very good, you know. So four and a half uh, for me, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's complicated. It's complicated, <laughs> as they say. And what are you saying overall? Then I, I don't know. I got about th- somewhere between three and a half and four. I mean, mm. I think it's one of those films. The further away you get from viewing it, it, it sort of fades from the mind. And I think it's really interesting that it's ended up with one single nomination from BAFTAs um, mm. because it's just gone a little bit off, out of the conversation. Oscar winner? Yes, no. Uh, oh, it's very sentimental. The Oscars. I say I, I'm going to say no, but he's got, he always has a shot. 
Yeah. Oh, who who the heck knows? I, I it's 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 I I can't see it, but yeah. Yeah, you, I can't that see doesn't it. mean it won't happen. I take your point. Okay, let us move on then to all the beauty and the bloodshed uh, again. This is a, an Oscar-nominated documentary this time, following the life of the artist Nan Golden and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty, who had, were greatly responsible for the opioid cr- epidemic crisis, the huge death toll involved there. Uh, Tara, the opening of all the beauty and the bloodshed, the artist Nan Golden walks into mm-hmm. the Metropolitan Museum of Art in yeah. New York. What happens? She certainly does. Um, <laughs> she she um, she walks in and then she lies down. Um, it's it's I mean it's it's such a great scene. Um, like there's sort of like her and her fellow protesters who are part of this um activist this group of activists um uh, against opioids and against manufacturers of opioids called Pain. And they're sort of milling around and and then suddenly it just all erupts and like mm. the, this mob makes itself known and and they're shouting temple of greed and and they're and they're throwing things around and then they all lie down on the floor for a die and so I mean and it's a great starting point and like all like great documentaries it sort of uses this as a springboard to go off into all sorts of other directions not just the opioid crisis not just the activism because Nan Golden and her um, and her colleagues were filming themselves for about two years before they mar- managed to get Laura um, Poitras on board yeah. and Laura Poitras is very well obviously like brilliant filmmaker behind um, the Edward Snowden portrait Citizen Four um, you know and all, sh- should really have a documentary about her at some point because it'd be really fascinating. Well, we'd have an interview get, with her next week. Yeah, to, it'd be fascinating fascinating to get in behind behind her brain mm-hmm. and, and her and her process. Um but yeah, so you have you have all this footage and they've managed to like interweave Nan Golden's own story in through that and, and herself and I think three editors have done that very, very elegantly. Yeah, they that is it's the kind of the two big pillars are Pillar stories here are Nan Golden's development through family and into into her uh, artist life as an artist, and then the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. Those are the two pillars. Uh, are they, how do they intermingle with each other, uh, Justin? Well, they give it. Uh, they kind of break it up into five chapters, and each chapter is titled from something relevant to where she is artistically, kind of at, at the time. And it always starts with family. And then it goes back to her sort of uh, when she's left the family and her development. And then it comes back to these pain protests. But what's fascinating is the, the, the through line of all of that work that her, you know, her sister committed suicide um, as, as a teenager and was institutionalized and very mistreated by, you know, the medical profession at the time. And that is always there, you know, yeah. driving Nan's response to the opiate crisis. She herself was addicted for a while. Um, and her artwork where she's, you know, did an amazing photo exhibit on people with AIDS when people were not doing that kind yeah. of thing at all, well before Angels in America uh, and that kind of movement. Uh, and so she was always involved in these communities. And what's amazing is that it's not like we look at this we look at that we look at that it's that all these things go together and that this is actually her greatest artwork is this protest over the Sacklers yeah now to give a sense of who the Sacklers are people may have seen Dope Sick the, mm-hmm. this, the television series which kind of tells this story and Oxycontin the painkiller and how it is used but uh, one of the contributors to the documentary is an investigative journalist called Patrick Redden Keefe and he gives us a sense of who Arthur Sackler who's kind of the the pater familias, uh, who he was and and what kind of involvement he had in both pharma and the arts world. Arthur dies before the introduction of OxyContin, and yet so much of what's happened is in part a function of Arthur's legacy. 
his contemporaries knew him as this kind of great art collector and this philanthropist. And the dirty secret was that he had come to this position of prominence and great wealth through the marketing of this drug, which also happened to be quite addictive. He creates a whole means of selling Valium in which you're targeting doctors. He devised a compensation scheme in which he would get paid a series of escalating bonuses based on how much Valium they sold. Well, Valium becomes the best-selling drug in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. And that's uh, Patrick Redden Keefe, uh, one of the contributors to the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, he, he wrote, by the way, a book called Empire of Pain, which treats the, the same subject in, in many ways. But that kind of strand of the the art and, and this kind of what, what art washing, as we might mm-hmm. call it, yeah. how the, how the sectors are, are were thought of as these great philanthropists, and yet it was the money that was supporting these great artworks came from the pain of many. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think, and there's... I think the documentary goes dabbles in this a little bit, but I don't think it asks enough questions. I like for for I for example, I don't the Sacklers aren't exceptional in the world of big pharma. They're they're absolutely emblematic mm. of how big pharma behaves in in every single um, sphere. Um, and and then there are larger issues as well about um, like and you, you know obviously kind of contemporary questions about sports washing, particularly after the World Cup and things. And and you know we, we here we have arts washing but in the arts world it's a it's a much more murky kind of a business because we all know about collections that were broken up in the 30s and 40s we all know about issues like the Elgin marbles which are still being negotiated for there's just like a whole minefield of 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 ethical issues in the art world and it's it's you just wonder like about pulling on the thread what would come out but to be fair to um, the the director in this particular case isn't she really is 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 the story that she's really telling here is it the Nan Golden story? It's the Nan Golden and story. How it fits into the Sacklers yeah. world rather than the Sacklers and how Nan Golden fits into it. Yeah, no, 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 certainly. And like, and it builds towards something like a happy ever, like a sort of a, mm. a happy ending and a, and a positive outcome. But that positive outcome does also include the Sacklers' own de- declaration of bankruptcy, which makes them completely immune from from civil prosecution. So that and let, allows them to keep their six billion. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and then they there's also, yeah. and and then also there's there's also okay, their name is going down off the top, like off certain wings or whatever. But you'll still find their name in smaller print around mm. museums and um, art galleries in the around world. Well, what this film also does, Justin, I think though, is it really does give us a sense of the New York and the artistic life of the, of New York as it was in and around the seventies, leading into the eighties and the AIDS epidemic towards the end, of the, and the kind of parallels between that and the opioid epidemic are quite interesting the way they're drawn out but it gives us a, a look into that art world that is extraordinary from that I think most of it is Nan Golden's own material Yeah no I mean because what happened technologically in the late 70s is these VHS packs you used to have to kind of wear them like a bag and you had the camera and a, and a mm. cable but they become affordable sort of like 77, 78, and you start to get these kind of video diarists almost. They, they don't know that's what they're doing, but they just sort of start taping and filming and photographing everything. And she just recorded 
all of her lives. Like the Jim Jarmusch is in a lot of these, John Waters, all these people are there kind of in this late 70s punk rock Andy Warhol world and she photographed it all. Mm. And, you know, these artists were doing really radical and extreme things and it's amazing to have this footage. It is almost like the filmmaker was able to go back in time mm. and get all the shots that they wanted because Nan had been collecting them, you know, all along. And so it's an amazing glimpse into that. You know, she, there's some footage of uh, Vivian Dick's movie who was uh, yeah. from Denny Gall mm-hmm. yeah. and she did a movie that won an award at a diff a couple of years ago, New York, our time. And they're like companion pieces because the footage and the people are all the same in kind of these two films. And it really is very different to the New York now. And of course, Nan Golden, what's fascinating about her is her works in these permanent collections of the museums yeah. and galleries that she's protesting. So she's risking which was a really, lot. Yeah, and was really unexpected, I think, from the galleries that an insider was kind of part of this this movement. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being romantic about it, but what it really gave me a sense of was just how powerful really strong activism can be yeah. and how they use art in their activism. It isn't that they're up shouting slogans. They're using the art mm-hmm. in really creative ways to make their point. I think there is a lot of parallels with um, the ACT UP movement, which they clearly, yes. which was which was, uh, which was was born out of uh, out of the AIDS crisis. And, and like, it's, and it's no accident that there's so, so many, there's so much overlap with her work as a chronicle of life in the Bowery and, and, and as a chronicler of, of AIDS in New York when, when it was still in its sort of infancy, I suppose. Um, it's like she's certainly taking her cues from there, and because like one one of the things, like even what they're dealing with is deadly serious. But there's a huge sense of like anarchy and sort of playfulness about about all their actions. Like it's not just that they're even like artistic, like pieces of performance, but yeah, like there there is there's a real sort of fun sensibility underlying. Yeah, them. one of the things that they, one of the sacklers said, oh, you know, when we get oxycontin going properly, there'd be blizzards of prescriptions. So what they do is they they draw they write out little prescriptions on pieces of paper and in the Guggenheim they drop those bits of paper from yeah. the various balconies and it's like a snow blizzard. No, it's stunning. And, and then the prescriptions have quotes yeah. from the Sacklers on them about their how they would make all this money and what have you. No, it's a stunning and that that some of that footage is actually in Dopesick that you mentioned. Yes. And it's amazing to then watch this. If you watch Dopesick first and then see where this footage came from. And yeah, it's beautiful. And the galleries are so overwhelmed, you know, there's no riot police yeah. to show up. There are these security guards completely outnumbered with no idea what to do with all these people lying dead on the ground with Oxycontin bottles around also, them. also, where it does hit hard is when we get is, is it a court hearing where the sectors have to sit and watch and we see them on screen. Well, two of them, one of them chooses just to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, or the know that he, he says he will listen and watch, but that he doesn't, he's not going to be seen. Uh, they, they have to watch as the families of people who have died from opioid overdoses tell their stories. That is absolutely harrowing to watch. Yeah, no, no, it's, it, that's a fairly, it's a fairly extraordinary sequence. So mm. you do have to think these people are rather used to bla- brazening and brazening it out. Um, but yeah, um, they, they had poker faces. Yeah, mm. yeah, there's, um, and that's, you know, it, it's sort of generally how like terrible billionaires behave and they behave exactly how you expect them to behave um which is you know they they you know and and that, Give away that again six or seven million to save yeah, six billion yeah yeah exa- yeah exactly <laughs> well that they took the money out of the company because it's privately owned mm-hmm. they could take the money out when they saw yeah, the writing on the wall and lots of legalities around yeah. yeah how they go about that yeah. which is probably a whole other set of documentaries yeah, in and yeah. of itself yeah, it stars from you justin 
Oh, I think Very Easy Five, you know, uh, 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 Laura Poitras has already won one documentary. I think she's got the set, as Ricky Gervais likes to call it. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm four and a half. I reckon she'll probably do the Oscar as well. Yeah, I think it would have to be the favourite. All right. OK, well, you're both in accord on the Oscar prediction on that one at any rate. And we better talk about Oscars now for, um, for, for, for yeah, <laughs> well, for, for playing. For, yeah. Well, I'm going to want one for reading this seriously. <laughs> Pilot Brody Torrance played by Gerard Butler, saves his passengers from a lightning strike by making a risky landing on a war-torn island, only to find that surviving the landing was just the beginning. Yep. Wow. What happens? Well, so you you ever hear like sort of teenagers do this thing who would win the sun or a trillion lions? Um, (laughs) uh, This is who would win Jared Butler or an island of jihadi pirates. And and just for for good measure as well, we get like Luke Cage star Mike Coulter along the way because we're we're sort of doing this sort of handcuffed together um, um, prisoner and and guard routine. So because they have to they have to join forces against the jihadi pirates. We, like, we get further and further away from the plane as a central concept, it has to say. Like, we don't we don't get a lot of plane for a, for a film called Plane. There's a disappointing amount of plane. I also, I also love the fact it's it's like New Year's Eve when this happens, which is a way to explain why there's so few people on the plane, because they were obviously just keeping an eye on the budget and spending it all on weapons. Because well, I will give it this. It gets an extra star for being absolutely, tremendously, fantastically violent. Like it's properly violent. Like there's just blood splattering everywhere. You, there's like right. there's a lump hammer to the throat. You know, which is which is impressive because like you know, obviously a, a claw hammer would have been much more effective. Oh, okay, I, I I'm getting a kind of a hint here that maybe you didn't enjoy it. Let me listen to a clip here where the plane is going through a storm, crashes on Jolo Island, which is controlled by an armed militia, and the passengers' lives are now in the hands of Brody Torrance, played by Gerald Butler. Come on! Now, there is no full rescue team coming anytime soon. Not for the next 24 hours. All right? We can't wait. They're going to come at us with everything they've got, and we're not going to survive. Now, Daly and I managed to get the power back up on the plane. We only have one chance. And that is me flying us out of here on this thing. No way. Listen, 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 listen. I didn't believe it could be done. I would not put you guys back on that plane. I have a daughter. And I have every intention of hugging her again and making a home. And I'm telling you that the way home is on this plane. I've got you this far. I just need you to trust me this one more bit, okay? All right, pre-flight checks. Copy that. Okay, everybody follow Mr. Kelly. Come on! And I thought I overacted (laughs) in the reading of the introduction. Um, Is his daughter in Scotland, in Canada, in America, or in some part of England? Hawaii. She's actually in Hawaii. Because his accent does quite a trip there. Yeah, he does. He's actually allowed to be Scottish. Oh, he's right. They do identify him as Scottish. He flew with the RAF cargo planes because the English lads got the fighter jets and that's how he got uh, into flying airlines. So his daughter, he's trying to make, there's a deadline, he's trying to make New Year's Eve with his daughter in Hawaii. and, And of course, he can't die 
die because the mother is already dead, so she'd be an orphan. So there's just that little bit more, just mm. a little bit more stake, just sort of yeah. put uh, put on, on top there. And what you can't see in that here in that clip is the spitting, the incredible sort of projectile yeah. spitting of, of his speech there. But but you know, anytime I see Jared Butler in, interviewed, I think there's a, one of the nicest men I've ever heard interviewed. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting career because obviously 300 made him a big star, but he's like one of those people, like he's he, he's had a few bites of the cherry. Like, I mean, the, the, like early on, he got Phantom of the Opera and that was a flop and Dracula 2000 and that was a flop, even though they were supposed to be big hits. Mm. Um, and then, you know, but he's kind of ended up in these kind of big disaster movies. And this one from the maker of the remake of Assault on 13, <laughs> Assault on Precinct 13 and so he's um, it, it's this is sort of it's not as good as the kind of Olympus Has Fallen type Jared Butler films but it is actually as Jared Butler films go actually ranking around the middle because there's been a whole bunch of, of these like yeah. type actioners that he's been involved in in recent years that have that are what we used to call direct-to-video um, what we like we don't there's no such thing as video anymore but it, it's the same principle they they go somewhere but not cinemas <laughs> Um, but, but is there anything to say of it? I mean, people will go and see this, I'm guessing. It's... Look, there's a chance I watch it again, okay, down the road. <laughs> oh. On TV, on TV, not in the cinema, but so there's a chance I'll watch it again. My wife loves these kind of movies. I know we're going to watch oh, it again. Oh, so you, you say you're going to watch it and then blame your wife, please. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know what? It's a Jared Butler film, okay? Yeah. If you have the right expectations... It's exactly what you would expect from a Jared Butler film. You know, a couple of stakes, you know, some good fights. He actually gets out of breath a couple of times here. They let him actually be a pilot. He's not Superman. They leave that to, to Luke, the Luke Cage kind of character. But uh, it's exactly what you'd kind of expect. And uh, it hits all those checks that you'd uh, expect. All right. From so a if, 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 you know, if you're wanting a Jared Butler movie... Go to this Jared Butler yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, stars. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit better than middle of the road. But I put it, I put it at sort of uh, two and a half. There were some threads. I wanted the corporate storyline wrapped up, and there's mm. a thing that uh, uh, Mike Coulter does something at the end, and I would like to have seen him at the end, sort of reaping the rewards of that. But other than that, two and a half. Okay, two and a half. Don't say, don't say that about the end. You're ruining the sequel already, Justin. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I'm good with two. So like high two and a half high two and three quarters even two and three quarters I think that's a first for the programme we will allow it in this case because Jared Butler is a nice man in interviews okay that is the, those are our three films then for this evening uh, The Fablemans uh, All the Beauty uh, uh, and indeed a plain to give it its one word title Justin McGregor and Justin McGregor and Tara Brady our reviewers on this Thursday evening It's all about the human heart at the National Concert Hall tomorrow night as the National Symphony Orchestra presents a programme exploring the highs and lows of that most tantalising of emotions, love, known as opera's coolest soprano. Danielle Denise will reprise her role as Elle in La Voix Humaine by Francis Poulenc, which she previously filmed for the BBC, but this is her first time to perform the role live in front of an audience. La Voix Humaine is a one-act opera for soprano and orchestra. It's the story of Elle not coping very well with being jilted by her lover. The opera presents her side of the story 
in one last phone call to her ex. La Vauxhaman is sung by Daniel Denise with Chief Conductor Jaime Martin uh, leading the NSO and he will also conduct Brahms' stirring, soulful and storm-tossed Third Symphony. In fact, the two of them will be in the concert hall the following Friday as well with Ravel, Shahrazad, very exotic song cycle and Mozart's Exultate Jubilate. However, I went along to rehearsals yesterday to meet Daniel Denise and Jaime Martin during a break after rehearsals for La Voix And I began by asking Danielle, how good a fit for her was Poulenc's La Voix Humaine? Definitely people have said to me that that's a piece for you. You should absolutely look at it. And um, I don't know why I didn't look at it before. But in the pandemic is actually when uh, it was my mom who said to me, um, you know, everybody's saying you should do La Voix Humaine and you're locked up in the pandemic. Why don't you do it? It's, you only need you to sing it. So um, it was just a, it was a kind of remark that she made and it turned into so much, which was kind of amazing. But um, it's allowed me to explore this piece, which I am just I. I think everybody was right. You know, I, I it's a piece ma- like made from my heart, you know, in that sense. I, I have um, really, really enjoyed the work that I've done up with it up to now. And it's kind of amazing to get a chance to perform it live with you. With Jaime, who's sitting sitting beside you there. And we'll come to Jaime in a minute. But I want, wanted to talk to you a little bit about the role of Elle or she. Mm. It's just her on stage, her and her telephone. <laughs> Let's face it. Give us an idea of her situation because it's, it's quite a drastic place I think she finds herself in. Yeah, um, Elle is a complicated character. She's written by Cocteau um, in a play that was a lot longer than Poulenc's version. In Poulenc's version, he made choices about what he was going to, you know, what he felt he gravitated towards in Cocteau's play. Uh, I think he wrote a letter to someone saying that he left out some of the more hysterical passages. So that's an interesting element to know but in another way I think you can only when you look at a piece take the character and build her from what is in the piece rather than what's not in the piece so I feel that everything she feels is real versus imagined so I want to give her as a character an opportunity to show that actually she had real cause to believe that this relationship that she has embarked on for so long, had a destination and was going somewhere. This I don't really see Elle as somebody who's delusional. So I don't. I, I when I've looked at the text, I've kind of gone, okay, let's treat her like somebody who's being rational about this rather than irrational. Because within rationality, you can also hold on to hope, and you can have false hopes, and you can hope for the good side in a person to come out, and and maybe it doesn't come the way that you expect. So I, you know, she she's had a long term relationship with someone, and it's come to an end, and she is uh, now grappling with the last goodbye, waiting for this phone call that he's going to ring her. But there are other questions that serve as clues of sorts. For example, like the fact that the man, the monsieur rings her back and the fact that he can't seem to pull himself off the phone either tells you a lot about what their relationship is like so it's not only one-sided that she's holding on for dear life to this relationship but there's something pulling him to her as well so these tell you you know indications about uh her rationality that actually she had good reason and good cause to 
make the decisions that she made. So, But what's very interesting about what you're saying now, because I suppose there's a temptation here. And, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, she's kind of going off the rails. She's a desperate woman, desperately chasing this man who's just doing whatever he's doing on the other side of the phone. You are, you are very keen that this is a very real contemporary woman that, that we're seeing on, on stage. And you speak about the role very much as like an actor would speak about the role, and I was in, I was interested to see that because essentially she is singing down the phone. The orchestra, in some ways, are the other voice, but we Absolutely. we don't we don't hear any words from the other voice at all. You went into a very method singing or method acting style. You went and wrote uh, the other side of that conversation, or imagined the other side of that conversation for yourself. Yeah, I was talking with our maestro about this, with Jaime about, yeah, I, I sort of read the piece and I went, oh, God, I really know Elle, like, I really know her. But then I, the really, almost the first thought after that was, I could not possibly do the piece without building the man, knowing the man and knowing his idiosyncrasies and the way that he reacts. I don't think you can kind of just act listening. Um, I mean, you can, but <laughs> um, it was just something I didn't feel I could proceed any further without coming to some decisions. And it's really interesting because there are some places where it's really clear what he says. So there are some places you go, she says, oh, what did I do? I went shopping. So if she says that, he must have said, so what did you do last night? So those ones are really easy. There are places where um, sometimes Poulenc writes her response with a particular color. So that tells you, that can tell you like, okay, he might have said this in a loving way. And so she capitulates. Um, so Poulenc had some spots where he had his own judgments and he he composed it with those colors. But then there are other places where it's completely open. I mean, he could say, and in fact, you know, looking at a couple of other versions, I mean, there's all kinds of different bombs that the man can drop on her in the conversation he could say I'm having a baby he could say I'm getting married he could say you know I'm leaving tomorrow there's there's one point where Elle says um your mother why that's hardly worth it and I mean that could be a million different things those choices you know are really amazing to make you know each time you do the piece they don't have to be the same each time Let's listen to a clip. This is from the the version you made with the with the BBC, the film version that you made with the uh, with the it was uh, Antonio Papano was was conducting there. Let's have a listen to a little section from La Voix Humaine. Tu es gentil, tu es gentil. Moi non plus, je ne me croyais pas. So that's La Voix with Danielle Denise uh, performing there in a film version that was broadcast on the BBC um, in and around the time of the pandemic, which is when it was made. Danielle is singing that role in the National Concert Hall tomorrow night, Friday night, uh, with Jaime Martin conducting. You've just come out of rehearsals, Jaime. Um, the way Danielle speaks about this role is is quite extraordinary. I've, I've seen people reacting even to the rehearsal about the brilliance of what's going on. How exciting a, a, a night is it that we have ahead of us? It's difficult to explain how excited we all are. Yesterday we met for the first time and we had a two-hour piano rehearsal. I was feeling so tired when I arrived. It was one of those awful days that everything goes wrong for myself. You know, I was tired. And then we met and had this rehearsal. I was so incredibly happy 
Actually, it was one thing Daniel said after the reunion. I said, oh, my God, we've, I've been singing for two hours. I should not speak uh, the rest of the day. And actually, what a shame, because I would love to, I would love to call everybody to tell yeah. them how much fun I'm having. Even just with the piano was uh, fabulous working with you. This morning we had uh, our first uh, orchestra rehearsal, which I believe is the first time you are going to perform this with an orchestra uh, live, not in a film. In yeah, a yeah, it's the first time so some of the phrases to hear them knowing that we're going to sing them together at the same time live versus in the film version where I, I did prepare the role with Tony Papano and we recorded the orchestral track alone, but I sang in another room. And that was only for a backup track because I ended up having to sing the whole role live on camera. So that was a, you know, I, I had one go in the room with the Orchestra of the Royal Opera House. But, you know, we were doing today some rehearsal for like two hours. And there were some colors that you brought out that made my hairs just stand on. And it, it was just spine tingling, you know, to to know, OK, we're going to marry this together for the first time. It's just that's, incredible. That's the amazing thing about this. We have... Your character, which uh, the orchestra is all the time commenting on it, but it's commenting with colors, it's commenting with sounds. It is completely ambiguous also, what mm -hmm. the, because the orchestra is not uh, what the orchestra says. It's, it's just sound. It's something yeah. that for everybody will be a different way of understanding. But actually, Asumta was uh, uh, listening this morning for the first time this rehearsal, and she said something that is absolutely true. Asumta, by the way, she was f with us with the National Symphony Orchestra, and she said she said that uh, it was completely like devastatingly beautiful music. And this is what it is: mm -hmm. it's, it's music that sometimes is so beautiful that it's painful. Yeah, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Yeah. And we're talking about Assumpta Dallas there, of course, of, of the National Symphony Orchestra. It strikes me, I, again, I'm struck by this thing that you said about, about Poulenc, that he makes it, he takes out some of the hysteria. You know, and the, the presumption would be, oh, it's operatic, it's going to be more hysterical than the Cocteau play. But no, he goes, he goes the opposite route. It, is this just an extraordinary talent in the, of, in the person of Poulenc, or is this just another example of misconceptions around what opera actually is and what opera can do? Well, I think that opera can absolutely be hysterical. I mean, and, and, and that being said, you know, what I've said about what Poulenc took out, it's one of the most beautiful things about interpretation is that actually, if, some, if I just say I was working with the director and he said, I want you to be out of your mind crazy when you sing this, I would adapt every bit of text and it would still work. It's how you interpret the text that makes it have the life that you give it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it is interesting that he took what he perceived to be the more hysterical parts out. Um, I think that's what for me... Maybe it's just because it's the way that I'm a little bit with all of my characters, you know. I'm I want to believe in them. I want to give them good cause to uh, proceed. So not that anything is uh, prescriptive, mm. and maybe that's uh, perhaps if if it was to be hysterical in its color, that it's quite easy for the audience to detach from Elle because they go, okay, she's lost the plot. So then this guy is just stringing her along. So, so that's a really easy trope to to, to portray. Um, and of course, you could portray that with like variety as well. But um, I think Poulenc himself was also somebody who understood rejection and he had had relationships that came to bitter ends that he couldn't, couldn't manage and that weren't so easily detangled. And... 
I think he infuses those emotions that are his own personal emotions. So he infuses all of the music with this, this layered great way that you described it. It's so beautiful. It hurts, you know, mm. it's like, it can be beautiful and painful, painfully beautiful. Um, The other aspect of Poulenc, I suppose, is, and I, it was you that drew my attention to this in an interview I read that you gave regarding Poulenc and that dichotomy in him between this very religious man and beautiful religious music and then something like La Voix Humaine. That's an interesting dichotomy. So you sing La Voix Humaine this Friday night, Friday week, you sing Ravel, Shaharazad. Oh, now we're in the, in the place of sensuality and... Mozart's exultated. So there you have the sacred and the profane mm. uh, both together in that concert as well. That's an interesting mix and very Poulankian, if that <laughs> adjective exists. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it will be amazing to do Scheherazade and then Exultate um, in the same program. I mean, there is something, I feel there is something incredibly godly in Poulenc's music, even if it is not the same kind of godliness that I feel I, I, with Mozart. It's, different. It's, it's the harmonies, you know. There are today when we were rehearsing, and you, you, we cannot feel it. There are some hor- harmonies are completely cosmic. Yeah, <laughs> you know the doo dee doo dee doo boo. I mean, it's the way it changes. It is like um, makes you. I don't know. It it really is very physical. I think it's music that goes uh, straight to your heart, and with Dan- with Daniel, mm. which uh, actually you cannot detach from it. See, in the, her plan this morning for the rehearsal: say, I'm going to take it easy. You know, sit down. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to take it easy because I need I need to control myself and uh, pace myself. So I'm not going to get involved too much. Yeah, just clinical. To 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 to. Oh my God, clinical! <laughs> and there, there, there she is, suffering and and getting completely involved. You cannot. You the, the, no, the problem no, is I that got exhausted you, yeah, and then you get completely exhausted. And yeah. then you're thinking, oh, is the the process of this? I am finding so incredibly enjoyable. Now I want to go to the rehearsals. <laughs> After that excitement, it sounds extraordinary. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much, Jaime, for being with us. And good luck with both concerts and how lucky we are that it's Ireland that's getting your first performance of Poulenc live in front of an audience. Thank you for having us. Danielle Denise, Jaime Martin there, that first performance tomorrow night, Friday, January the 27th at the National Concert Hall, the Ravel and the Mozart the following week. You can find out full details of both concerts, nch.ie. Despite dying at the age of just 31, Franz Schubert left behind a vast body of work, including vocal pieces, symphonies, operas and chambers musics. But it is his songs, really, that stand out in that body of work, and in particular his three song titles, all three of which uh, will, will be performed in, in <laughs> over the next period by Niall Kinsella. Will I tell a lie when I say will be? They've already done one of them, uh, the Schöne Muller, in the first of the song cycles earlier this month. But February, we'll see the uh, two remaining song cycles performed by Niall on piano, along with two different singers, Owen Gilhooley, Miles being one of those who will sing the third song, song cycle, Schwanen Gesang, at the end of February. But Niall uh, is with me in studio and Owen will be joining us on the line shortly. Niall, those three song cycles... Um, th- Give us a sense of the journey that he makes just in those three cycles from the first one, the, the, the Miller's Daughter, through the winter's journey into the swan song. 
So I think first thing it's it's really important to say that these song cycles for one composer would have been enough. Mm. Um, he composed like 600 songs um, but you know he decided kind of relatively towards the end of his short life to write these uh, three song cycles Schöne Müllerin being the first one then Winterreise um, Schöne Müllerin was 1823 Winterreise uh, 1827 and Schwanengesang 1828. So I suppose what we can see a progression through the three cycles is the first one is very uh, very much a linear narrative mm. it's a it's a traditional story there's a beginning a middle and an end young fellow falls in love with the miller's daughter and off they go exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. except it, uh, I don't want to yeah, don't spoilers, want to spoil the end but yeah <laughs> um, and then uh, Winterreise is kind of um you could say a follow on from that uh, you know he he's um the 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 the, the protagonist has been sort of thwarted or, or, or yeah. rejected by his lover and he, he goes off into, in, into the wilderness and it's it doesn't have a linear plot as such. It's kind of 24 emotional scenes and it's all reflected by, of course, the surroundings. Um, and then, of course, Schwanengesang was really not a cycle at all because he composed two groups of songs and then they were published after his death mm. and the, the 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 publisher made it into a cycle. Yeah, so it, it, it maybe it's not his uh, idea to have it as a cycle, but it's, yeah. it's Owen Gilhuli Mels who has to sing that non-cycle yes. cycle <laughs> and Owen is on the line, uh, as I say. And uh, Owen, uh, I'm just wondering from the singer's point of view, all of these song cycles, for the most part, you're talking about poems that were there extant, poems that exist existed that Schubert then set to music. How important is that aspect of singing Schubert's songs, you know, the fact that it comes from poetry, how important is that for you? Oh, it's hugely, hugely, impo- hugely important because for me as a, as a process, it's, it's really important to se- separate the text from the, from the music and to be able to you know, recite it as, as if it was a, a poem in English to be able to get completely underneath the skin of the of the text and to be able to get as close to what we feel in a in a modern sense what Schubert was after. Yeah, and and when you are singing a cycle like that, and even though Niall has said that in some ways it was the publisher that decided that Svanengesang was a song cycle, do you get a sense of you know is there a, a great sense of completion in going through all of the songs in the cycle? Um, there is, but this is slightly different because you're you're dealing with different you're de- dealing with three different poets, firstly, and then the way that Schubert has set mm. them. You know, especially towards the end of the cycle, there is a real sense when he's in the Heinrich Heine poems. A real there's an emptiness within those that isn't necessarily in the in the, the earlier, earlier ones. ones. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. Let's have a listen to a little bit of one of the earlier ones. In fact, number four, the serenade or the stenchen, as it is called. Bryn Terfel is the soloist here, and this is your choice, Owen. Sorry, he's got Bryn off in the in, the, in his prime there. That's Bryn Torfell singing one of the um the, the serenade from the Svanengesang song cycle of Franz Schubert, and that is one of the pieces that Owen Gilhuli Miles will have to sing alongside Neil Kin- Lyle Kinsler on piano in in the upcoming performances. Um, is is the Bryn version? It, can you listen to other singers and get something from that, or what do you do when you listen to him? Is somebody like because it's such a wonderful voice that he has, Owen? 
Bryn, Bryn was the was one of the the the, the first um, uh, voices that really made a lasting impact on me when I was a very young student. I was in the UK and he had released one of his uh, first albums, and I just remember the the honesty within how he was singing it and. And he was singing with his complete voice, which um, in other recordings, sometimes you feel like there's a little bit of affectation. But no. I felt that was very, very, very honest and kind of heart-rending sound. It connected with me. Yeah, and there's no, there's nowhere to hide, I suppose, in these type of songs as well. But I'm wondering, Niall, about the interplay between piano, because you as a pianist, this is, Schubert doesn't, he's not saying, here, the song is the star here, and would you just play some nice chords behind mm-hmm. there? What is that interplay like? Well, I mean, that's the reason I, I do this. That's the reason I I, I, I perform leader and song repertoire is because this is the place where the the pianist and the singer are really equal in their interpretation and their storytelling. Um, as you said, it's not a case that the piano accompaniment is secondary. Mm. Um, it, they are they really play an equal role in in bringing this music and the text to life. So that makes it all so enjoyable to to work on to perform because you have this uh, inherent sort of to and fro between the singer and the pianist. So rehearsal is really fun because sometimes you know I will say something to the singer and the singer will say something to me and. It, it's it's just a it's a completely wonderful collaboration and it's um yeah it's it's really the reason I do it yeah and I suppose you would echo that on that it it isn't a case of um, just play that nice chord for me please there is more at at stake here than just singer and piano it's the two things together. Oh, completely, completely, and it's it's the journey. It's the journey the the pianist and the singer go on together. That's mm. that's what makes it a unique experience. And every time, every time you do something like this, you learn something new. Even if you've yeah. done the cycle a, a million times, yeah. well, <laughs> you listen, come back to it and you'll find something new. Well, you'll be doing it for the first time um, on February the twenty sixth. So we should say that the the second the second of the song cycles, the Vinterreise, um, will be on Sunday the fifth of February. Andrew Gavin is the performer there at the Hugh Lane Gallery. Details we found on HughLane.ie. And then Niall Kinsler, who's been with us, and Ongil Huli Miles, who was on the line there, will be performing Shivan and Gesang together at Smock Alley on Sunday the twenty sixth of February. SmockAlley.com will give you all of the details on that one. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. I'm Andy. Paso Devine and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy, 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 Tommy O'Sullivan, for some reason, whose name won't come into my head, was on sound this evening. He turned my microphone off now. And tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan.